0: Welcome to Episode 6 of Thought for Food, a special series within the Science and the City podcasts, presented by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Episode 6, Rock Steady. So, in the last few episodes of this series, we've worked through fat and sugar, And now we come to the last of our trinity of culinary boogeymen. Salt. And it turns out salt is downright fascinating stuff for all kinds of reasons, from culinary to historical to medical, even military. But let's start with culinary. Salt is one of the most important and versatile ingredients in food from just about every culture worldwide. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first is, of course, that it's tasty uniquely tasty, actually. There's nothing else that has the same flavor, and we have dedicated taste buds that can't pick up anything else. Here's Maudine Nelson, who teaches nutrition at Columbia University Medical Center, and who I hope you remember from several previous episodes of this series.
1: There are taste receptors in our mouths that are specifically there to receive a salty effect. And most likely it's part of what gives us the inclination to eat more of a food. So there is an innate liking for salt. That's the whole idea about you can't eat one chip, is because that salt, that saline solution that forms on your tongue when you're eating that chip, is so good you definitely want to go back for another. It wasn't for the potato.
0: Salt also has another unique characteristic. If you use it in small quantities, you can't necessarily taste the saltiness, but it makes other flavors come forward. Sweets taste sweeter, meats taste meatier, and vegetables more like themselves. It's this chameleon quality of salt that makes it so popular with cooks. use of salt is actually the original definition of the word seasoning, and a trained chef will put a little pinch of salt in almost everything he makes. The food industry puts salt in just about every packaged food that's available, too. Because without it, most things are really pretty bland. If you've ever had bread that was accidentally made without salt, it's almost inedible. Salt is and has been so ubiquitous in food since time immemorial that most of us have never stopped to notice how downright strange it is. For starters, it's a rock. We eat other minerals, of course, meaning inorganic micronutrients – iron, magnesium, zinc – but they come to us via organic tissues. For instance, vegetables that pick them up in small quantities from the soil they grow in. We don't just grind up iron ore and sprinkle it on our salad. But salt comes out of the ground in pretty much the same form in which we eat it – complete mineral crystals. Also, the two component chemicals that make up what we call salt are, taken by themselves – Incredibly nasty things.
1: Sodium is approximately 40% of the the weight of table salt, and the other half is chlorine. So, when you get sodium and chlorine together, you form sodium chloride. And they are two wickedly powerful atoms by themselves. Um, sodium is very really flammable, and chlorine is very caustic.
0: Pure chlorine is so poisonous that it was made into a gas and used as a chemical weapon in World War I. It actually has the dubious distinction of being the very first weapon of mass destruction. It's also what we use to keep our swimming pool water clean. But in that case, it's only used in one or two parts per million. That's one or two thousandths of a percent chlorine and the rest water. And that's still enough to cause your eyes to burn if you swim all day. Salt is 60% chlorine. And the other 40% is sodium, which is so volatile that if you drop pure sodium into plain water, it actually explodes.
1: But curiously, when they come together, they become this nice inert molecule, and it tastes good.
0: (laughs) Curiouser still, if you drop sodium chloride into water, it not only doesn't explode, it breaks back down into sodium and chlorine as it dissolves, but both remain safe and inert. And you have salt water, the most abundant and life nurturing substance on Earth. Nutritionally speaking, it's the sodium, the explosive, not the poison gas, that's the active ingredient in salt. And for all the bad press it's gotten, and the seemingly endless waves of low sodium foods that have become available, sodium is crucial for our life and health because it's the most important of a class of nutrients called electrolytes. And electrolytes are the tools our body uses to control water. It all comes down to the fact that our bodies have a lot of water in them. 70% of our total body weight. But that water isn't 100% pure H2O. It has a lot of other stuff, minerals and such, collectively known as solutes, floating around in it. Here's Dr. Michael Alderman, professor emeritus of cardiology at the Albert Einstein Medical Center here in New York, and editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Hypertension.
2: All the body's water is maintained by having a a fixed amount of solute within that fluid compartment. Sodium is the largest single solute within this solution, which is in and out of cells and inside the bloodstream. And it is the most important component that determines the flow. Uh, material in and out of cells, in and out of the bloodstream.
0: So what does that mean? It means that sodium is the operative ingredient in a system of fluid maintenance in our body that's amazing both for how simple and how subtle it is. It starts with the fact that every cell in our body is defined by a semi-permeable membrane, which, as we learned in episode 4 of this series, is mostly made of cholesterol. These membranes are solid, but water can pass through them, kind of like a wetsuit. Here's Ms. Nelson again.
1: All of our tissues are made up of cells that have membranes, and fluids pass in and out. So you have this fluid, and water, that's outside the cell, extracellular, and fluid inside the cell, intracellular. And the electrolytes are specifically evolved to keep the amount of fluid at a very specific concentration inside and outside of our cells so that you don't have too much fluid moving in one direction or the other.
0: And sodium and the other electrolytes, like potassium and magnesium, do this, keep that amount of fluid constant across cell membranes, because they have a property called osmolarity. You can think of it as a tendency to become diluted in water. To help explain, here's Dr. Mariana Markell, professor of nephrology at SUNY Downstate Medical Center.
3: So as opposed to potassium, which is found mostly inside cells, sodium is found mostly in the extracellular fluid. And it's what's called an osmol, which has to do with movement of water. If you dissolve a certain amount of solute in, in water, it creates osmolarity. And so if you have something that has the high osmolarity on one side of a membrane and lower osmolarity on the other side of a membrane, water is going to flow toward equalization of the amount of solute, so you'll eventually have the same amount of solute on both sides.
0: To understand this, think about a swimming pool. Let's say you dump a cup of finely ground salt into the water at one end of the pool. It wouldn't stay concentrated in the spot where you dropped it. It would spread out, diffuse itself across the whole pool, so that if you took a sample of pool water later on, there would be more or less the same percentage of salt in the water everywhere, no matter what part of the pool you took the sample in. Now, let's say you had two pools with a wall between them. One entirely filled with water, and one entirely filled with salt. If you remove the separating wall, the water would rush into the salt side and begin dissolving it. And eventually, you would have a solution on both sides of 50-50 salt water. Now, let's say you have a big pool and a little pool. And between the two of them, you have a semi-permeable membrane that water can pass through, but not salt. And both pools are filled with salt water, with roughly the same ratio of salt to water. If you add salt to the big pool, the water level in the little pool will drop, because the water will rush through the membrane to try and even out the level of salt in both pools. If you were to somehow remove some of the salt from the big pool, the water level in the little pool will go back up for the same reason.
3: And that's how sodium works in the body. Sodium is the actual molecule in the body that maintains the osmolarity of our plasma. It's the most important osmole in our plasma. That means that the body maintains a constant
0: level of water inside the cells, keeps them from becoming dehydrated, by maintaining a constant level of sodium in the plasma that surrounds the cell. A level that matches the osmolarity of the other kinds of electrolytes that are inside the cell, on the other side of the membrane.
3: So sodium is regulated fairly tightly between about 135 and 145 milliequivalent in our uh, blood and in most of the f- extracellular fluids. If it gets too high, then what happens is water comes out of the cells to try and maintain that, and that's not a good thing. That's when things get dehydrated. If it gets too low, you can have other problems where water actually goes into cells, and that is also bad. If, you're, if the sodium in your blood gets too low, water will leave and go into cells like your brain and can cause all kinds of really bad things to happen. Acute low blood sodium is, is fairly unusual, but it can sometimes happen in people who've been exercising a lot because one of the things that uh, happens when you exercise and you sweat is you do lose sodium in your sweat. And then if you just drink water, as sometimes someone's running a marathon in hot weather and they drink a lot of water, then the sodium in their body can actually get too low to the point where they could actually seize or uh, go into a coma if it gets too low. So drinking too much water to the point where you lower your sodium is bad. Having too much sodium is, can also be bad too for various reasons.
0: The reason we're talking to a nephrologist or a kidney doctor about all of this is that we control the sodium-to-water ratio in our blood plasma by, and there's really no more polite way to put this, urinating. The kidneys monitor the ratio of salt to water in our bodily fluids and adjust the concentration in the urine to compensate. That's a big part of why your urine is so pale when you drink a lot of water, because your body is conserving salt by excreting more water and less solute.
3: Kidneys really are the ultimate control of salt and water in the body. So if you eat more salt than you need, in most situations, you will, over time, excrete it. The the kidneys will excrete any excess salt that, that, that you've taken in, as long as they're functioning correctly.
0: Let's pause here for a bit of a historical tableau. Throughout history, salt... Sodium chloride has been one of the most valuable substances in the world.
1: It has been a symbol of of power and might, the one who sits above the salt. And, you know, it's a symbol of um, human protection. So you throw salt over your shoulder to get rid of bad spirits.
2: The very word uh, salary comes from the Latin cells. and, And the Roman army was paid in salt. Uh,
0: the salt trade to the East of the Hamish. Salt has always been recognized as a matter of cash transport. This is partially because it's delicious, partially because we need it for our health, partially because until the late 19th century it was very difficult and expensive to produce, but mostly for an entirely different reason. Salt was one of the most valuable substances in the world because it works absolutely brilliantly as a preservative. This is actually because of the same water-balancing quality of sodium that makes it so important inside our bodies. To understand this, we have to understand that the microorganisms that make food go rotten and make us sick basically need the same things to live that we do, water and food. So,
1: when you have a food, it's just perfect for a microorganism to, to set up housekeeping in it the microorganism wants the water in the food for its own life cycle. It wants to drink and and pass the liquid, right? The microorganism wants the carbohydrate or the protein in the food because it can make its own enzymes to to break it down and for energy. So if you take the water out of the food, mold, viruses and bacteria aren't as likely to live on the food.
0: So, If you take almost any perishable food product, say a fish or a piece of fruit, and you pack enough salt around it and give it enough time, it will eventually become totally dehydrated. And any nasty critters in it or around it will either die from want of water or move on to a friendlier environment. And the food you've saltified will stay safe to eat. That's called curing food. We all know that the very best way to keep food fresh for a long time without changing the flavor too much is by keeping it cold in a refrigerator or a freezer. But the modern refrigerator wasn't invented until the 1850s. This means that for the first couple of hundred thousand years of human existence, unless you lived somewhere with a lot of snow and ice, the only way to eat safely was to either eat your food fresh, directly out of the ground or off a freshly killed animal, or to pack it in salt. For basically all of the working poor for most of human history worldwide, the staples of life were salted meat, salted fish, and either bread or rice. This vital historical importance of salt as a preservative belies one of the most pervasive myths about sodium consumption. That we eat more of it now in the modern Western world than we used to in the past because of the fact that there's a significant quantity of salt in most modern packaged foods. Actually, The records we have access to from the 19th century and before tell a very different story.
2: Soldiers in the Civil War were eating uh, 18 grams of sodium a day, 800 millimoles. The average American for the last, well we know certainly for the last 50 years has been remarkably stable at consuming about 150 to 160 millimoles. Oh, wow. Today. So it's, it's seven times as much or something? Yeah, six, six seven times as much.
0: Another source of information are old recipes. People have been writing cookbooks since at least the 1300s, and many old recipes call for staggering amounts of salt, both as a preservative and because people have become so accustomed to the taste of it from eating so much salt-preserved food. A typical recipe for butter from early 14th century England calls for one pound of salt to be added to every 10 pounds of dairy. That's about 10 times as much as modern salted butter. 17th century bacon was so salty that it had to be soaked in clean water for as much as two hours before cooking so it would be considered edible. Now, the reason we're all so concerned about sodium and how much of it we're eating and whether it's more or less than we used to eat or more or less than we should eat is that many very popular and widely accepted scientific studies have drawn a straight line between high sodium consumption and heart disease. More specifically, between high sodium consumption and high blood pressure.
1: So you have to profuse your organs with blood constantly, so you have to keep your blood pressure at a certain level. If it falls under, then your organs, you know, your pancreas, your everything, doesn't get enough of a blood supply, therefore it's not being nourished. It's not getting enough oxygen and taking away waste. And if your blood pressure gets too high for extended periods of time, then you're putting stress on the blood vessels. And that stress, if that's a blood vessel in the brain, could result in a rupture or a leak, and that means you will experience a stroke and if that damage to the inside of the blood vessels becomes involved in another process such as accumulation of scar tissue and cholesterol and calcium you get plaques and then those blood vessels lose their flexibility and that then can lead to other cardiovascular complications like a heart attack so we don't want blood pressure high because it just never ends well and in general the Amount of salt in the diet has been shown to increase blood pressure.
0: Here's Dr. Alderman again.
2: The idea about too much salt being bad for health derives from the observation that showed folks who were in isolated communities with little access to sodium had lower blood pressures at 20 and 30, and their blood pressure didn't seem to rise with age. And by the 1980s, it became clear in a meta-analysis of 147 good randomized clinical trials done around the world, very reliable, that uh, there was a modest but significant association between the sodium intake of communities and the blood pressure of those communities. But at any rate, the argument was, well, gee, maybe a low-sodium diet would prevent blood pressure elevation commonly occurring with age, and and because we know a lower blood pressure is associated with reduced heart attacks and strokes, it would be a good idea to do that for the whole population. And some people became quite enthusiastic about
0: it. And so, lowering salt consumption became a full-tilt public health drive. It seemed, and to many still seems, like a simple and beautiful answer to a huge medical problem—heart disease, which is the number one cause of death in much of the world.
1: So there have been lots of commissions and expert committees that have formed to say, what can we do to reduce the amount of salt in the food supply globally? Because we do see that the more salt, generally now we're really talking about the more sodium, in a food supply, the higher the blood pressure, and the higher the blood pressure, the greater the chance of damaging the insides of those blood vessels. And then the greater chance of those that leading to complications of damage, you know, Complications of diabetes, complications of heart disease, lots of nasty things.
0: These observations have led to dietary recommendations for sodium intake that are much lower than the 3.5 grams per day that most of us consume.
1: For example, the Institute of Medicine says that anyone over 50, anyone who's an African American, and everyone who has high blood pressure should eat no more than 1,500 milligrams of sodium a day a teaspoon of salt has 2,000. In other words, from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep, your total sodium is less than a teaspoon.
0: Recently, though, and Dr. Alderman is near the forefront of this charge, there are many researchers and physicians who think that the health benefit of lowering sodium consumption has been overstated, and maybe grossly overstated. The first reason for this is that even though dramatically lowering sodium intake can be shown statistically to lower blood pressure over a large group of people, that decrease is an epidemiological finding across the whole group, not a certainty in any one person. Many of the people who participated in the original studies had no decrease in blood pressure at all. Uh, The
2: majority had no effect on their blood pressure. Some people had a rise in blood pressure More people had a fall in blood pressure, but still on average, if you could lower the blood pressure by a couple of millimeters of mercury and everything else was equal, why wouldn't that be good for you? I mean, we know lower blood pressure, even if it's just a little bit, but if the whole population had it, it ought to do some good. So it's not an irrational hypothesis.
0: To Dr. Alderman's way of thinking though, there was a serious flaw in this hypothesis. The problem was, that it was only looking at sodium's effect on blood pressure and ignoring the fact that sodium is inherently really important stuff in your body.
2: What, of course, it ignored was that when you make the kind of sodium restriction required to affect average blood pressure, it's likely probably some other things would happen as well. And in fact, a bunch of other things happen.
0: Among these, There's now research that shows that an extreme decrease in sodium consumption, the kind required to have any significant effect on blood pressure, corresponds to an increase in production of a hormone called renin.
2: It is a hormone uh, secreted by the kidney, which induces a, a sequence of enzymatic actions that ends up with a protein called angiotensin And angiotensin 2 has a lot of actions, it also causes vasoconstriction.
0: Vasoconstriction means tightening of the blood vessels. And just like with pipes or hoses, tightening them increases the pressure of the fluid inside. So, because it can increase renin production, dramatically cutting your sodium intake can actually raise your blood pressure. And if you think about it, dramatically cutting your sodium causing something else to kick in that raises your blood pressure back up actually makes sense. Because there are as many chemical checks and balances in your body to prevent your blood pressure from going too low as there are to prevent it from going too high.
2: Anything we do aim to lower blood pressure. It will in some people cause a rise in blood pressure, because we have these systems designed to respond. Sometimes they might over respond. You know, the system's not perfect.
0: Now, we have to keep in mind in all of this that there's a medically clear and crucial role for low-sodium diets for some people. If you have kidney disease, for instance, your whole sodium water management system can be thrown completely out of whack, and a low-salt diet might very well save your life.
3: Now What happens is if the kidneys can't handle salt appropriately, if you end up with a little too much salt in the body, because the level of salt has to stay in a certain area, then you end up keeping more fluid in the vascular space so that the concentration of salt stays the same. You don't pee out as much fluid. Your blood volume expands and your blood pressure goes up, theoretically.
2: So how can we go about answering the question, is it good or bad for us, to lower our sodium intake? You can't predict the outcome by picking one of these things and saying, I, th- I think I'll take the renin thing and then I'll make a model and say well I know that an increase in renin by this amount in- is associated with an increase in heart attack deaths by this amount and therefore a lower sodium diet is going to kill a million people. Or I could pick blood pressure and say a blood pressure fall of 2 millimeters for 300 million Americans would reduce heart attacks by this amount. Can't do that because it's going to be the sum total of all of those physiologic consequences of reduced sodium intake.
3: So I I think that these general population recommendations tend to be um, you know they're, they're from a public health perspective and they try to capture people who don't know that they have diseases but the problem is that some data came out earlier this year and late last year and people who had the lowest amount of salt in their urine which and they excluded people with kidney disease, actually had a higher risk of dying, which suggested that people who were severely restricting salt might also have more mortality than people who were eating the most salt. So it had what's called a J-curve, so the people at the lowest level had an increased risk of mortality, and the people at the highest level had an increased risk of mortality. So
0: there's a sweet spot in the middle.
3: There's a sweet spot in the middle, but the sweet spot in the middle was definitely higher than the recommendations for the restrictions that have come out lately.
0: So what's the answer here? Should we all be lowering our sodium intake or raising it or not worrying about it at all? Well, as unsatisfying as it may be, the only reasonable conclusion at the moment might be that it depends.
3: For, for, say, a 25-year-old otherwise healthy person, I don't know that there's a place for sodium restriction. I think that sort of a person, if they eat a balanced diet will be fine. For a 55-year-old, overweight, smoking man, there may be a role for sodium restriction because that person is at high risk for cardiovascular disease, and they probably need to reevaluate their diet, but not just in terms of sodium, in terms of their simple carbohydrate intake, in terms of you know how much calcium and vitamin D they're taking in. I mean, there's there's a lot of aspects to diet. One of my problems with sodium restriction is it... As I said, it demonizes sodium and says that, okay, we're going to concentrate on sodium, whereas there's so many other aspects of the diet that have an impact on health.
0: So what's the moral of this story? It might be this, that no two individual people's nutritional needs are exactly the same. A severely sodium-restricted diet that might save your life might make me really sick, and we can really only make an educated guess as to which would happen until we both try it. Massive public health campaigns work from the statistical assumption that enough of the population will be helped by that particular dietary change to overshadow any outliers who it ends up harming. As we saw in Episode 2 of this series with the public acceptance of vitamins, sometimes history proves an assumption like that is absolutely correct. As we saw with the mass adoption of trans fat in Episode 4, it's sometimes completely wrong. And anyway... Even the successes are cold comfort to those of us who end up being outliers. All of which begs the question, how are these assumptions made in the first place? And should they be? How do we know that we know what we think we know about nutrition? And is there a way to move towards a more personal understanding of what we should be eating? Tune in next time for the final installment of the first season of this series when we address that question directly by diving headfirst into the wild and woolly world of nutritional biomarkers. Special thanks to our experts in this episode, Maudine Nelson, Dr. Michael Alderman, and Dr. Mariana Markell. Another invaluable resource to portions of this episode was the excellent book, Salt, A World History, by Mark Kurlansky, published by Penguin Books 2002. This podcast was a production of Science in the City and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit us on the web at scienceandthecity.org and nyas.org nutrition. And also, please feel free to share your thoughts with us about this podcast by email to
1: scienceandthecity at nyas.org.